Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Der Show. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Sarah Palin verdict, some new developments in that case. We'll also keep you up to date on the Durham investigation, looking now at the Democratic Party as to whether they acted improperly and used dirty politics to try to falsely accuse Donald Trump of being in bed with the Russians. So uh, we'll talk about both of those issues, and then if we have time, I know a lot of you like the questions and answers, so we'll try to get some, some time for some comments and questions, some of them pretty strongly worded. Um, but let's start with a little bit of a seminar on the First Amendment and defamation law. First, let me give you the headline. So as I speculated the other day, um, the jurors did know uh, about the judge's decision to throw out the Sarah Palin case, regardless of what their verdict might have been. Uh, the judge today candidly acknowledged that a number of jurors had these kind of push notices you get on your um, uh, email or um, you know on your computer or whatever. And although the jurors said they scrupulously tried to comply with the judge's instructions not to read the newspapers, not to watch television, they're on their computers sending emails to the kids and suddenly there's a headline, a judge throws out, you know, Palin case. Of course, the juror's not going to turn it off or, or, or turn away. The jurors also uh, told the judge, and here I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you, uh, quote, these notifications had not affected them in any way or played any role whatever in their deliberations. In other words, the jurors have told the judge they would have decided against Sarah Palin anyway without regard to knowing that the judge was going to throw out their verdict. Is that true? Is there an unconscious influence? I mean, if the jurors came in and had a hearing and every one of them said, we decided at the beginning of deliberations, well before we heard from the judge that uh, we were going to rule against Sarah Palin. By the way, they seem to have ruled on both grounds. One, that she wasn't defamed, and two, that the New York Times did not engage in malice, that is, reckless disregard for the truth. Their first, first verdict is clearly wrong. Of course she was defamed. There's no real doubt about that. When you say in an editorial, as a statement of fact, that what Sarah Palin did caused the serious injury, the shooting of innocent people, that's defamation. I think the jury was simply wrong on that, and maybe they would have been reversed uh, had that been an explicit ground. They were arguably right on the malice, although I think it's a closer case because the Times mistakes always tend to favor the left, always tend to be anti-Israel, always tend to be uh, pro the things the Times are pro and anti the things the Times are against. So when all the errors go one way, if I would have been the, the, the trial lawyer for Palin, I would have introduced massive amounts of evidence of all the errors the Times made and showed how they skew in one direction rather than the other to show uh, malice, to show that there's a history of making mistakes one way, which show they're more cautious uh, when it comes to criticizing the left and the Palestinians, and less cautious when it comes to criticizing the, the right and Israel. Um, will the case be reversed? Probably not. What I suspect the Second Circuit might do and I said this even before we learned about the jurors, 
admonish the judge. Uh, I like Judge Rakoff. I think he's a very good judge. I think he made a mistake here. I don't think that he should have announced his decision. He could have written the decision, put it in a draw, and then released it as soon as the jury verdict came out. But he should have anticipated the fact that jurors would learn. Uh, it was a very, very important story. And as a very important story, it's almost impossible that the jurors wouldn't learn about his actions. And then he might have thought, gee, I'm not that important. Even if the jurors learn that I would dismiss it, they have an independent mind and you know, they could still come to their own independent verdict. That's too risky. That's too risky. The trial by jury guarantee of the Bill of Rights is too important. Um, and I think the Second Circuit will take this opportunity to issue a very strong rebuke of, uh, of the judge and a statement that in the future, no judge should ever issue a public decision while the jury is deliberating. You can do it before. You can say there was insufficient evidence. I'm going to throw it out. You can do it after. You can only do it after if the jury rendered a verdict in, in opposition to what you, you believe. But you can't do it while the jury is deliberating. It's just too risky. Okay, now a little bit of history of defamation and, and the First Amendment. Uh, you know, we were the first country in the world to promote freedom of speech. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech um, and the right to assemble to petition the government for a redress of grievances. It was originally intended as a restriction on Congress, originally intended as a restriction on the federal government, but it's expanded over time. The 14th Amendment Due Process Clause has been interpreted to incorporate much of the Bill of Rights as applied to states. So today, no governmental entity, whether it be a university, the University of North Carolina, Brooklyn College, where I went to school, um, no government entity, city government, state government, federal government can abridge the freedom of speech. And so how does that relate to private lawsuit? Uh, Somebody accuses me of something, I accuse somebody of something. Maybe I have a lot of defamation on my mind because I just finished another day of being deposed by David Boyce in a defamation suit where he's suing me for defamation, I'm suing him for defamation. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the jury decides there. We'll see whether the judge throws one of our cases out or lets the jury decide the whole case. I'm not going to really talk about that today, but I know a lot about defamation law. I know a lot about defamation law because... A, I know a lot about the First Amendment, and B, because I was one of the law clerks uh, that um, was assigned to help write New York Times versus Sullivan. I was a law clerk in the 1963-1964 Supreme Court term before most of you were born. It was a great term of the Supreme Court, worked for Justice Goldberg. It was a great decision, New York Times versus Sullivan, written by Justice Brennan. And uh, vindicating the New York Times, it had printed an ad and the ad had defamed a sheriff, and uh, the Supreme Court threw it out and said that if you are defaming and being accused of defaming a public figure, sheriff, um, I'm a public figure even though I'm not elected because I have a podcast and because people know me. David Boyce is a public figure because, obviously, he's in the news and um, has was president, uh, uh, Vice President Gore's lawyer. So we're all public figures here. And uh, so the Supreme Court said that if a public figure sues for defamation, he has to prove that the defamation was malicious. That is, that the defamer 
either knew that the story was false, which is true in my case of um, Virginia Gouffre, knowing she knew, of course, that I never met her. Uh, I never met her, sorry, because she think otherwise. Um, but um, the um, either you have to prove knowledge of falsity or a reckless disregard for the truth. That is just, I don't care. I just don't care. I'm publishing this. I'm writing this. I don't care. Truth be damned. Those are very, very hard standards to me. And it is very possible that the Supreme Court, after such a long time, um, may very well modify the requirement of malice uh, for uh, public uh, figures. I thought maybe they would do it in this case. This is not a perfect case for them to do it necessarily. It's a good case, but the Supreme Court usually likes very clean cases. Had the jury, this would have been interesting, had the jury ruled for Palin and the judge thrown it out, that would be the perfect case for the Supreme Court because they could say, look, the jury found that there was a um, um, uh, malice here and uh, the judge said no and now this is a good occasion for us to redefine what malice means. But because the jury seemed to have not found defamation at all. It's not a clean, a sufficiently clean case for the Supreme Court. So it's very possible that the Supreme Court will, will duck this case. I think the, the uh, Palin team will probably appeal. They've been very quiet about this case, but they'll probably appeal. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll go away. Who knows? The times won't settle because they have the First Amendment to, uh, to protect. So I don't know whether we're going to see any further litigation. Look, my case, conceivably, one of my cases, I'm up to my neck in defamation cases. I'm also suing CNN. I'm also suing Netflix. Um, and um, in uh, all of those cases, I have to prove uh, malice. I think I can do it. Um, but um, those cases may come to uh, the Supreme Court as well. Who knows? Um, uh, uh, I ain't settling my case with the Virginia Gouffre, not me. I'm not following the prince. I don't have mommy telling me I have to settle the case, um, even if mommy were to pay the 12 million pounds or the 12 million dollars, I don't know which, that, uh, that Virginia Gouffre got. So I'm not settling my case. Mine will come to trial. And there will be a jury verdict and a judge's verdict and an appeal, probably, and ultimately made maybe a guess at the Supreme Court. I hope I live that long. That's obviously the concern. One more quirk of defamation law that probably most of you don't know about is, say I'm suing uh, David Boys, and David Boys is suing me for defamation. If I were to die, generally the law is that a dead person's estate can't be defamed. So my case might very well be dismissed if I die. But if he dies, um, uh, he, he, he can still uh, persist in, in suing my estate. We both die. Estates can sue each other, but probably not for, for defamation. But the defamation law goes w both one way only. The dead person can't sue, but the dead person can be sued. So if I'm dead, they can still say, when I was alive, I defamed him, and therefore my estate owes him money. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, if you're going to have defamation, it should be equal. It should go both ways. 
and death should either cancel both cases or not cancel either case. I don't think it should cancel any case because, as Shakespeare said, what's the most valuable thing? Not your pocketbook, but your reputation. And your reputation after death is important, too. Any of you who may have read my uh, autobiographical book, Taking the Stand, may remember a humorous ending. I end the book by writing a letter to the editor, to the editor of the obituary section of the New York Times complaining about my obituary, even though I'm dead, just because I always like to get the last word. But um, reputation's important. I care about reputation. That's why I'm involved in these, in these lawsuits. And uh, speaking of reputation, let, let's turn for a couple of minutes to uh, the Durham investigation. It's incomplete, so let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not rush to judgment. Some very important information came out on Friday. And the information suggests, suggests, there's no probable cause, uh, there may be probable cause, but there's no certainty, suggests that Democratic functionaries, Democratic lawyers may have engaged in dirty politics and improper conduct and in, 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 in overhearing and surveilling. Uh, we know that um, even before Durham, that uh, some people on the Democratic side some particularly law enforcement people committed a serious crime in failing to disclose to the FISA court the full picture of the, of the dossier, the famous dossier, which was used by the FISA court as the basis for granting warrants to overhear conversations of American uh, people. Um, and we know that the FISA court was denied full information about that. And that's a terrible thing, because the FISA court is an ex-party court, just one side. The other side isn't hurt. And so, therefore, the government has a special obligation, a special responsibility to tell not only the truth, but the whole truth. And if the truth changes, to withdraw the affidavit and submit a new affidavit, which tells the whole truth. They didn't do that. And that's a scandal. And that's a scandal that crosses the line from bad politics to criminality. It's a very important line. I never want it to be breached. I don't want to see the weaponization of political differences into crimes. And I've seen it now on both sides. The Democrats certainly tried to do that with the Trump administration. They went beyond criminalization. They went to impeachment twice. Uh, I don't like that. As you know, I opposed it on the floor of the Senate on behalf of, of, Senator, um, of President uh, Trump, and, and, and we, we prevailed, but who knows what will happen next time. So I'm not in favor of jumping to make something a crime. And in the Durham report, I haven't yet seen enough incriminating information to move from dirty politics to unethical behavior to arguably criminal behavior to real criminal behavior. Thus far, the Durham investigation has produced only what are called process crimes. That's important process crimes. But they're not substantive crimes. Lying to the FBI, failing to tell a full story to the FBI. These are crimes that grow out of the investigation itself, not what's being investigated. So, so far, we really haven't seen from the Durham investigation, 
clear evidence of of criminal of criminal behavior. There may be there may be such evidence, and if there is, it should be pursued. But the key the key is the shoe on the other foot test. That is the key is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You can have any amount of cliches you want, but the meaning is you can't prosecute one side for something if you wouldn't prosecute the other side for it. And almost everybody is guilty of violating that rule. Uh, Republicans keep saying, prosecute the Democrats for that. But when the Democrats prosecute the Republicans, they say, no, there isn't enough crime. And the Democrats do the exact opposite. So both sides violate the shoe on the other foot test. And both sides want to selectively weaponize the criminal law to go against their political enemies, and I'm an enemy of that. I'm not on either side. I'm against both sides when it comes to trying to use the criminal law improperly as a political weapon to try to gain, to try to gain advantage. I was very much against it when Hillary Clinton very well may have lost the 2016 election because of a terrible mistake by the head of the FBI, who, as you know, issued a statement, um, maybe correctly, but condemning Hillary Clinton's use of her servers. And that's not the job of the FBI. They're an investigative agency. And generally, government doesn't comment when no criminal charges have been brought. And he kind of made a speech saying, no, we don't, we're not bringing criminal charges against Hillary Clinton, but let me tell you what she did. And that may have affected the election. Maybe it didn't affect the election. Who knows? But we shouldn't be worrying that statements by prosecutors not bringing criminal charges may have affected the election. And again, this is not me as a Democrat saying this. This is me as somebody who cares deeply about the rule of law. I'd say exactly exactly the same thing, whether it was a Democrat or it was a Republican. So this is a perfect transition to the questions, because a lot of the questions are exactly about that. So here's the first one. Alan, I agree with many, if not most, of your positions, but, capital B, big, big, big capitals, but you know that was coming. I do not understand is your knee-jerk loyalty to the Democratic Party. It's not the party of your youth, and it holds position contrary to much of what we believe. One need not be so bold as to be a Republican. One can simply not be a Democrat. Please comment. And there are a number of comments on the comment. Um, I'm a conservative, and I like your show. You might be a Democrat. But you are not a lunatic. Thank you. Thank you. You make valid points. Thank you. Just a couple more on the same theme. I wonder the same thing, Mr. Dershowitz seems to be a very committed Democrat, but I'd like to know one good thing that any Democrat today is doing or trying to do. It's probably a question Mr. Dershowitz may feel is inappropriate to discuss. Oh, well, I love the guy. Anyway, and... Um, People accuse me of being loyal to the Democratic Party. Let me be very, very clear. I am not loyal to the Democratic Party. I prefer, in general, the policies of the Democratic Party over the policies of the Republican Party. I am in favor of gay rights. I am in favor, generally, of abortion rights. I am in favor of the separation of church and state. 
I am in favor of reasonable gun control consistent with the Second Amendment. I'm in favor of an economy that reduces tremendous differences uh, between the very wealthy and the very poor, not by reducing the amount the very wealthy have. I'm not one of these confiscatory people. I don't support uh, 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 Warren's view uh, on that issue. I just think that people on the lower scale should be elevated. No, don't reduce the top, elevate the bottom. So I'm a, I'm a Democrat when it comes to these issues. I don't like a lot of the Democratic leadership. I don't, I don't like the leaders of the Democratic Party uh, today, uh, many of them, and I certainly don't like the radical wing of the Democratic Party. Um, they are my biggest enemies, bigger than the Republicans. If I have a choice between voting Republican or voting for AOC, voting for Liz Warren, voting for Bernie Sanders, voting for people on the extreme left, Elon Omar, some of those other people, I'd probably vote Republican. I wrote a book about this, actually, um, uh, called Why I Left the Left But Couldn't Join the Right. I guess the whole name of the book, you might be interested in it. It's the case for liberalism in a divisive society, or why I left the left but couldn't join the right. I am not a leftist. I'm not a leftist. I'm a centrist, libertarian, who believes in maximum freedom, but I can't join a party or a group that doesn't favor a woman's right to choose, doesn't favor um, separation of church and state, doesn't favor gay rights, including gay marriage, doesn't favor reasonable gun control. If I were living in Britain, I'd be a conservative, not a member of the Labour Party. Why? Because in England, the conservatives are libertarian. The conservatives favor free speech. The conservatives favor separation of church and state. The conservatives favor gay marriage. The conservatives are opposed to the death penalty. The conservatives are in favor of all the libertarian things I care about. I, I'm much closer to the British Conservative Party in many ways than I am to the American Democratic Party, but here I don't have the choice. Here are my choices, unfortunately, extremes. The Democratic Party, which is moving, 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 moving toward the left, and the Republican Party, which has moved much too far to the right. If today there were an Eisenhower Democratic Party or a Rockefeller, I'm sorry, Republican Party, a Rockefeller Republican Party, or, or, or a, uh, an early, early George uh, Bush, first George Bush uh, Republican Party, I'd probably be a member of the Republican Party. But there is none, and I can't join a party that doesn't favor the basic rights of women, the basic rights of gay people. Uh, and so I'm homeless. That's why I have a podcast. I can say what I believe without wearing a big label. So I am not loyal to the Democratic Party. Let's be very clear. I'm very loyal to America. I'm loyal to my ethnicity. I'm very Jewish, and I never tried to hide that. Uh, I'm loyal to my family. I'm loyal to my friends, the few I have left uh, after having represented President Trump. Um, but I'm not loyal to the Democratic Party. Leave them in a second. In fact, I threatened to leave them a few years ago when they wanted to nominate and elect as head of the uh, Democratic Party, somebody who I regarded as a 
a racist and uh, an anti-Semite, or at least somebody who had been very close to racism and anti-Semitism. And the Democrats didn't elect him. Uh, they made him vice chairman, but I remained a Democrat. Who will I vote for in the next election? Presumptively a Democrat, but maybe not. Depends who gets the nomination. Bernie Sanders? No, I'm not voting for him. Uh, but I'm also not voting for extremists on, on, on the right. I, I would love to see candidates elected who I feel comfortable voting for. I felt comfortable voting for Joe Biden. I like Joe Biden. Uh, I've liked him for 40 years. I like Hillary Clinton. I like their politics. I like Bill Clinton's politics. Um, but I'm not sure I'm getting that next time around. If the Democratic Party doesn't move to the center, they're going to lose voters like me. And, you know, some of us will stay home. I will never stay home. But some will stay home. Some will vote for a third party. I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to, in the end, pick and choose one or the other. But I'm not loyal. I'm not committed to one or the other. I'm going to go where my politics and my policies take me. Okay, a couple more questions. We know the reason why protesting the outcome of the election was an insurrection while lighting fire to a federal courthouse in Portland was a mostly peaceful protest. As long as the Democrats do not consider themselves accountable to the public, as long as CNN, etc., cover the present one-party monopoly, they will continue to lie, knowing they're lying, and know that we know that they're lying. There's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the um, the um, protest in the Capitol was not an insurrection. It was a protest that got out of hand. I fundamentally disagree with the people who engaged in, 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 in violence, but I fundamentally agree with the right of those who went outside and, and, and did what President Trump told them to do, protest peacefully and, and patriotically. I wasn't on their side of the protest. My own feeling was that though the election had problems, particularly in Pennsylvania, the end result was, was, was correct. With, uh, which gets us to the next question. Um, I, hate, I hate to agree here. No, the next question is, you think President Biden was fairly elected? LOL, I just lost all my faith in your integrity. And then the response to that, I hate to agree with him, but the smoking gun evidence isn't there. The Democrats covered up, mind you. I don't believe Biden won. The current GA investigation and the AZ investigation shows enough fraud to um, doubt the results. No, I, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I think there are enough doubts to raise questions about the future of voting machines, about um, the future of uh, access to the polls, about legislation. I support legislation which maximizes the opportunity of everybody to vote while minimizing opportunities for fraud. But voter suppression is a much more serious problem numerically than, than, than voter fraud. Look, Biden won the election overwhelmingly in the popular vote. I don't think anybody can really dispute that. Even President Trump doesn't dispute that. But he's right. We don't play by those rules. Uh, that would be like, you know, saying, I didn't like the end result of the, of the Super Bowl because the team that lost got more yards than the team that won. No, that's not the rules. The rules are 
points. And, you know, the, the Bengals put up a great, great, great uh, fight, but they lost in the end. I was rooting for them. I wish they had won, but they lost. They lost fair and square. I didn't like the last calls in the game. I think it gave too much to the Rams when they were right on the one or two or three or five yard line. That may have determined the outcome of the game. As you know, I don't like penalties for poor sportsmanship. But in the end, I couldn't quarrel with the, with the result. They won fair and square. And I think the same thing is true with, with uh, Biden-Trump. Uh, Biden won the popular vote, but that's irrelevant. That's not the system we operate under. And you just don't know what the popular vote would be if we were operating under the popular vote. Candidates would, can, would, would campaign in different states than they do today. Today they campaign uh, generally in, in purple states and states with large uh, electoral votes. Um, if it were a popular vote, it might be quite, it might be quite different. I think Pennsylvania was wrongly decided. I think that Pennsylvania may very well have gone to, uh, to Trump because they changed the rules at the last minute, although I don't think there were enough votes in the end to change even Pennsylvania's electoral votes. And that may be the reason the Supreme Court took the case. I think the Supreme Court should have taken the case, should have used it as an opportunity to rule that you cannot change election laws by executive mandate on the eve of the election, that something's wrong with that. But in general, I think that the election uh, was fair. And um, in the end, I think the right person was elected. And as I said, do I agree with everything Joe Biden is doing? No. Have I ever agreed with anything that any president has done when you count everything they've done? No. The first person I ever voted for was John Kennedy. And I was so opposed to so many things that that he did. And then Lyndon Johnson, the same thing. And, you know, I've been opposed to Democrats. I've been opposed to Republicans. That's our right. The right to gripe, the right to bitch and moan, the right to yell, the right to protest, the right to go to the Capitol and hold up signs. Uh, all of that is part of our right, the right to vote, the right not to vote. But if you want to vote, you have the right to vote. Nobody should stop you from voting. And so, I'm not a loyal Democrat. I'm not a loyal anything but civil libertarian. And so I'll end with a, a positive statement. Uh, this is from Free Me Voice. The only liberal I will ever listen to. You're a man of integrity. Even if I don't always agree with you, I appreciate you're not following the crowd to keep your status. Boy, am I not following the crowd. And is the crowd not following me? Come to Martha's Vineyard one day. You know, if you had come five years ago, I was the mayor of, uh, of Chilmark. I would go to the porch for lunch and everybody would come and we would sit around and Larry David would tell bad jokes and I would tell better jokes and we would schmooze and we would have fun and we would make plans for the evening. Today I go to the porch of the Chilmark store, everybody leaves. Uh, it's as if, you know, I have COVID. Um, so uh, I'm not following the crowd and the crowd isn't following me. My next book is called the price of principle, uh, and I'm telling the story about how sticking to principles has made me a pariah on the Democratic left and among some Republicans as well, and um, uh, uh, I don't sink from the pariah status. I'm too old to change my principles. I'm going to stick to my principles. You're going to hear my principles on The Der Show, and I hope you'll write critically of my principles. Please keep writing. 
Just scroll down, it says comments, write your comments. No comments will be scrubbed. No censorship on The Dirt Show. No censorship on Rumble. See you next week.